My name's David and this is the Hypothetic RL Podcast, a podcast about the what-ifs of rugby league history. I'm about to introduce my guest, but before I do, I just want to put a, a small disclaimer caveat to Dragons fans. Um, I apologise, I did not choose this topic, and I don't really want to take grant this 2010 Grand Final for you again, but it's, it's going to happen again, guys. So uh, if you are a Dragons fan and you want to stop listening now, and that's fine, uh, and if you want to be a Dragons fan and come on my podcast or a fan of any, any other team want to come on my podcast and avenge the losses that I've put on you over the 70 odd uh, times I've probably done it to you uh, feel free to contact me uh, hypotheticrl at gmail.com or at hypotheticrl on Twitter send me a message and, and we'll organise something alright well I got that out of the way, so I will introduce my guest. So my guest for today is Eamon from the Voluntary Tackle podcast. How are you going, Eamon? I'm very well, thanks, David. How are you going, mate? I'm good. So you are a Roosters fan. You're one of probably two Roosters fans in all of existence. So uh, how's it feel to be sitting there next to the other guy? Mate, uh, Nick Politis and I have been friends for quite some time and uh, thankfully between us we own uh, several uh, multinational companies and that sort of helped propel the Roosters to our success in modernity which has been great and and look just to your disclaimer there I just I know you've apologized to Dragons fans but if if it's okay with you mm-hmm. um, I'd like to double down and say uh, to all the Dragons fans listening uh, from one Roosters fan to a Dragons fan I'm quite enjoying uh, the idea of sinking the football boat into your ribs uh, because the 2010 <laughs> Grand Final, David, still hurts me. Okay, well that's fine. Well, that that's no problem. Uh, look, I I know a couple of Dragons fans, and and when I say the only two Roosters fans, I I must apologise. I actually know other Roosters fans, so there there is some more of you out there. Uh, so all the jokes about you know only having two fans, it's it's at least five that I can find. But <laughs> you know we we make it in double digits eventually. That is our campaign, I think, is um, hashtag double-digit fan base. And uh, Brad Fittler <laughs> kicked it off uh, last year. And we're up to, I think it's up to nine now. So we're oh, on wow. the precipice. Well, I mean, look, if you can if you can just get one across the line, it's, it's going to be a tough mm. ask. But if you can get one, uh, we'll see how you go. All right. Yeah, well, we're trying to get Tedesco. <laughs> he's not even a fan of the TV place for. <laughs> no, he's, a, he's a Tigers fan. Uh, he's just here for the premierships. No, that's fair enough. And I've got I've got one other question for you. And uh, look, as as you are so close with uh, Mr. Politis and obviously in in positions of power, I I just want to ask you that this uh, SFS renovation, uh, it's not Brett Morris coming across the Roosters and saying that he needs the ground that he plays on to be a metre wider or something, is it? Is that is that the idea? You know, maybe so his foot doesn't go over a touchline next time or. Well, you know, you might have a point there, David, and I guess, you know, when I look back on it, I, I, I think about that moment and the Morris brothers obviously having since joined the the Mighty Roosters and all of my malice for Brett Morris has completely gone out the window. But it's weird. It's weird to think back on that game and go, that's right. At the time, I hated that guy uh, for <laughs> basically ruining an entire year for me. Um, so, yeah, you're, you could be right. We could be um, just making the, the width of the ground a little bit longer. But at this stage, as you may know, 
it's essentially just um, a couple of wrecking balls and Jimby Barnes at the moment. That's all that's there mm. because there's a bit of a, um, a stifled construction site going on with the New South Wales government. So hopefully the Roosters will have a home ground by 2030. That's our goal. Oh, well, you know, that's fine. There's no, pro- there's no problem if you don't have one. You can you can play at the SCG for a bit longer because, of, yeah. of course, it is an oval shape and all we've got to do is just widen the lines there a little bit for him. So, you know, there's a there's another way of going about this. So I, I've already kind of spoiled what we're going to talk about for today. Uh, I just thought I'd ask you that question because I, I, it was the back of my mind. I thought, well, you know, they're renovating and, and maybe that's part of the reason for it. So... What we're looking at today is the 2010 Grand Final, and we're looking at the event that happened in the sixth minute, I believe it was, where Brett Morris uh, gets tackled over the sideline, throws the ball back inside, but it's not called. And within the next play, or I think it might be two plays from there, uh, the first try of the Grand Final is scored by the Dragons, and they obviously go on to win that game. Before we go too much into the events of 2010 Grand Final, it might be a good idea just to just to look back, maybe just the 2010 season. So did you want to talk through uh, the, the season for the Roosters? And I can give the Dragons some Yeah, sure, mate. Look, um, being the sort of walking encycl- encyclopedic fan that I am, I can remember that season uh, fairly well. It was, a, it was a really odd season from the Roosters' point of view because... We, uh, I think, we're coming off the back of a wooden spoon. So mm-hmm. we're one of those teams that were going from wooden spoon to grand final, which is, I guess, rare in itself. But uh, we also had, a, I guess, a fairly drastically changed roster. We had a few young guys that no one had heard of yet coming in, like Jake Friend, uh, Jared Rubia Hargraves, uh, who did go on to some acclaim <laughs> later in their careers. Um, but also a guy called Joey Leilua, who also cost us the 2010 grand final, but we won't go there. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, we really rode there on the back of Todd Carney. Todd Carney was unwanted. It committed several crimes by that point. Uh, no felonies, so it was all good. And the bubbler hadn't happened yet. So people still were willing to accept him in the rugby league community, but he was just on fire that year. He went on to claim the Dally M, and we, we had a fairly inconsistent year, actually. We... I had Brian Smith as coach, who I was never a huge fan of because he's one of these guys that loves to play mind games with his best players for some reason. Mm -hmm. Uh, Went on later to coach Newcastle. I think, sorry, it was earlier that he went and coached Newcastle and rubbed up Danny Badiris, the world's nicest guy, the wrong way. So that that tells you a little bit about the guy. Um, And he never won a premiership and he's been to a few grand finals. So he had the sort of historically has had the proverbial monkey on his shoulder for a while. And we had this early sort of slump in the year where he was playing guys in weird positions. So I think Todd Carney was playing fullback initially. Um, Braithen Astor was in the six, which he, you know, should never have been at any, in any time in his career. Um, but eventually they shifted things around and put Carney into the six, put uh, Braithen Astor into lock, which is where he belonged. And suddenly things clicked into place and we went on a bit of a run. Mm-hmm. And despite having a bit of a, I guess, a semi-slump back in the back end of the season, we rolled into the finals. And I'm sure all of your listeners will remember this game. Uh, a very, it was the 2010 um, finals match against the West Tigers, which was still to this day, uh, without bias, I think that's one of the best games of rugby league anyone will ever see, yeah. uh, just because it was two, two really attacking sides uh, going at each other and there was ebbs and flows, and then there was moments in the game that you probably never see again, like winning against the feed. 
in the yes. last minute to, yes. to snag a win. So the Roosters to get into this grand final had to be, um, it was a bit rocks and diamonds and we were a bit of an, uh, a confidence team, whereas our opponents in the big dance were the Dragons, who were the sort of, I guess, the epitome of consistency, mm. uh, a methodical defensive machine who were really boring but effective. That's true. Um, so I don't know if that gives you an accurate retelling. That's no, the way no, my brain good. remembers it, David. No, that's that's perfect. I, I just want to mention to to regular listeners that we obviously did that game, the Tigers um, Roosters game, and what we did in that one is that we had a look at the actual scrum that happened. Uh, I don't know whether you, you want to look back over it, Eamon, but uh, there was some improper binding by some of the Roosters players, uh, and I feel like that if we had a good old fashioned seventies ref, we might have got a penalty there, uh, and it probably would have been a, a Tigers victory rather than a a Roosters victory but you know either way that's all good uh, but yeah look it it makes a big change 2010 is one of those seasons where uh, just I mean I suppose in any seasons this way but it's one of those seasons where a very small kind of thing could have really made a huge difference in that final system it was there was a I mean that let's go I think I might just talk on the the Dragons really quickly so obviously you know we all know who the Dragons are uh we know that to, during the 2000s that they had a lot of opportunities to win a win a grand final or you know sort of a bit like my team Parramatta just sort of falling at the final hurdle the year before 2009 minor premiers went out straight sets two uh, losses in the finals and you know basically 2010 was was their destiny year if you think about it they they had the super coach Wayne Bennett you know they had a, a team with good a good mix of experience and youth and you know they they really had a like you said a very defensive mentality it was a very much a positional game it was you know kicking to the corners and forcing mistakes and that sort of thing uh, i wouldn't say they were a flashy side but you know everything seemed to go for them that season as well i mean even the fact that grand final day was a wet boggy event so it kind of favored a team that was a little bit more conservative as well I'm not a flashy side. I think understates it, David. I've seen yeah. um, old geriatrics playing bingo with more charisma than that team, but um, but they were very effective, as you say. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing is that if your team can play a that sort of style and still win a grand final, then you you'll take that no matter no matter yeah. what they say. <laughs> can you tell I'm bitter? I think you can. <laughs> that's okay. That's fine. But look, we you're allowed to be bitter. I I'm bitter about so many different seasons. So you know, 2010 <laughs> is not one of mine because obviously my team went nowhere near the finals or nowhere were good at all. We were at that point still trying to figure out what happened the year before. We just wasn't. We just weren't sure how the hell we made a grand final and then why we weren't doing it again. But uh, anyway, yeah. you know. Now you were thinking, what, why is Daniel Mortimer in yeah. a grand final? I think you probably spent the next 12 months assessing that and, and you took your eye off the ball. Yeah, we just weren't sure. I think I think we realised that, um, you know, just throwing the ball around like Harlem Globetrotters, you know, maybe that wasn't the way to go about it. But maybe it was the way to go about it because obviously next mm. year they tried it. They tried to be conservative and they tried to play like these other teams and, yeah, it didn't work out too well. So didn't look at, work out. I mean, maybe if they could have just had had every other team call themselves the Generals, um, it might have been not a bad idea for Parramatta and they might have won 2010. But, you know, not a good year for, for Parramatta. But we're, we'll go back to the Dragons and... Like you said, you know, not a you know, very methodical style, and a you know, like they had Jamie Soward. That was went a team that has Jamie Soward. You know that you're going to have a good kicking game, and you know you're going to play field position. That's that's his one thing that he does very very well. 
and I mean, you look at the defence. The I'm not saying that Gaznier and Cooper weren't attacking players, but their defence was was what they were made were sort of made for. And you know, in the 2010 sort of season, players. I don't know if it's different nowadays, but there was a lot of those uh, second man kind of block plays, a lot of attacking the edges, a lot of trying to attack your your second your outside back rower and your your centre. And if you've got two centres that can defend like they can, you're going to go really well in a in a premiership. Yeah, I agree with you, mate. And and uh, that Dragons team, obviously, as you mentioned before, they had the great Wayne Bennett joined them with a fair bit of expectation because, you know, Bennett had been coaching Brisbane for so long. Mm. And I think for me, that year always highlights how good Wayne Bennett is as a coach because I, I feel like up at Brisbane, he had, you know, the pick of the Queensland Rugby League and invariably had uh, quite flamboyant teams. Came down to this Dragons side and sort of, Always, my theory is that he always plays what his roster is. Um, yeah. He's not one of these one-size-fits-all types of um, coaches. In, in fact, it's usually about inspiring people at a, at a personal level. And that Dragons team, without being disrespectful, you would look at that paper and not think, wow, what a shoe-in for the premiership. Mm-hmm. But I think he played to the fact that, okay, we haven't got these flamboyant attacking teams, attacking players in this team. Uh, so our game plan will have to be about field position, about consistency and a grinding defence. And he did it all the way to the premiership. Yeah, yeah, and that's very true. Well, I think that's a that's a pretty good history of, of 2010. It gets us up to this game. So, you know, Dragons win through. I, I think they won their first round. I think they might have smashed Manly in the first round. And then they won a very tight game against the Tigers in the preliminary. Uh, you guys obviously came from well I think we were in sixth position so you actually had to play three yeah. games so yep. uh, obviously the West Tigers victory uh, who did you beat in the second round I can't remember um, I know we had to I know we beat the Gold Coast Titans that was the prelim uh, yeah, in the prelim you smashed um, them yeah yeah I'm trying to think I think it might have been Penrith was it I'm trying yeah, to think who we I'm beat I'm not that. sure I can look it up later it's fine it's no yeah. I, I, it, it doesn't really affect what we're talking about here but I was just trying to just trying to make sure I remembered because I looked at it about half an hour ago and I still can't remember so obviously whichever team that was I apologise to them but you seem you're pretty nameless and faceless in this one so <laughs> it might have been Penrith because I feel like they were, had a, they were going well and they had an injury crisis so they were sort of sitting ducks yeah, in that um, in that final series, I think they went out in straight sets. And had we lost that major, amazing game to the Tigers, I know we would have been eliminated, had we finished sixth. So mm-hmm. uh, we wouldn't have been there to begin with. Yeah, exactly. And, that, and that's the suppose the thing, you know, the late season run, um, and you know, making the grand final from sixth position is is pretty impressive as well. But yeah, like there, were, I think there were a few teams there you came through. What once you beat the Tigers, I think the Tigers were the other of of the real premiership threats. I think they were the ones who were were really the threat to the Dragons. Um, obviously you guys as well but I think they were the, the bigger threat and mm. you know like that preliminary final they played out the, the week before you know it was it was a pretty tight sort of affair as well but look let's get on to the game that we're talking about uh, yep. so obviously we've already said it in the sixth minute Brett Morris steps out um, I'm not a rest fault kind of guy but uh, poor old Jeff Eunice has is, is, um, got a few Roosters fans offside, I'd imagine, over the years. Uh, he, he wasn't. A, he was in a very bad position, and I don't think he could have actually seen the foot on the sideline. But you know, it's just one of those things. If if he's if he puts his flag up, you know what what happens from that point on? I suppose. 
Yeah, look, as you said, it goes on to be a pretty key moment in the game. I think it's two rucks later, um, a cross kick from Sauer to Gaznia puts it in for the first try. Mm-hmm. As much as, you know, I remember watching that game and um, yelling many obscenities at the TV, uh, it, it is a, a really tough one to call, isn't it, for a touchy? It was, you know, yeah, sure, he had his boot on the line, but um, in real speed, that's a tough call to make. So I've seen howlers, and that wasn't one of them. Well, I mean, look, I'm not going to say that Phil Gould is any way impartial. Uh, I know that he is. I know he's not impartial. But uh, it was a very interesting call. So I, when I listened to it today, I listened to the uh, the Channel 9 commentary, obviously, because that's what they've got on NRL.com. And uh, I found it very interesting that just as, just as the pass goes back inside, uh, the comment from Phil Gould is, how did he stay in? Um, so I don't know whether maybe Phil wanted to get get his uh, touch judge, get his coaching certificate. Oh, sorry, sorry, his refereeing certificate out there and and uh, go run that touch line as he has done in the past and put his flag up. But I think he was pretty confident that Morris didn't stay in. I think he was sort of you know in his own Phil Gouldism, just sort of saying. I think you missed something there, boys. Um, it, back in 2010, he was a little bit less refs faulty, actually. So it was really, it's quite interesting. You know, he was he was conceding. Oh, I think he actually says exactly what you said. Oh, it would have been impossible for him to see that. So let's just play on. Um, but yeah, no, they they didn't pick it up, and the commentary didn't pick it up, and no one picked it up until I think just as Sowards kicking that goal uh, after the try. So they've done the video ref review and everything. Everyone's happy. Uh, just as they're saying that, uh, Rab says something like, uh, "We've got um, we've got a bit of footage, so after this kick, we're just going to go back to the uh, Brett Morris uh, near the sideline, and of course they show it, and if you hear the whole crowd go boo, whatever, um, and yeah, it, it just sort of goes a bit silent in the commentary box for a second, and then you know Phil delivers that line. Well, we couldn't have seen it anyway, so let's just move on. So, you know, I understand I understand what you're saying, but." I mean, if I was a Roosters fan, I'd be pretty gutted at that point because the game was very much in the balance. At, and there's, I mean, it's only six minutes in, but yeah, the Roosters had a little bit of a chance. I, I watched it through. They had a, they had a um, inside the twenty. I think uh, Miles runs through, throws an offload to someone about third minute, and they. They all stand there looking at it going, what's this football thing? And uh, one of the dragons jumps on top of it. So, uh, you know, like it, was, it wasn't it was like the, the dragons were well on top early or anything like that. It was very much in the balance. Yeah, I agree with you. In fact, um, taking my tricolour blinkers off, um, I, I do think the momentum was actually with us in that first half um, by a margin. Uh, yeah. You know, there were missed opportunities. We didn't convert um, our tries, so that, that lowered our score as well. But um, I think Joey Lalua bombed a try, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it could well. And if, if obviously, the, the Josh, the Brett Morris incident had been picked up, then that wouldn't have gone on the scoreboard either. So conceivably, you might have been looking at a, a potential 18 0 uh, margin. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it just felt like the momentum was with us. And the funny thing about that Roosters team that year was that they were such a confidence-driven side mm-hmm. that when things didn't go their way, they could go missing, which was part of the frustration of that team. But, of course, if it did go their way, then they could just step on your neck and have a bit of fun. Mm-hmm. So you, you do look at those moments and go, well, I wonder if that early punch in the face uh, from the Morris incident was enough to just deflate their confidence in, uh, in that first half enough. Yeah. Um, it's, it's one of these moments. It's the point of the podcast, right? Well, that's Who knows, right. Yeah. That sliding doors moment. 
That's exactly right. Well, uh, just just a bit of a uh, quick summary of the rest of the game. So obviously, halftime it's it's eight six. So there's two tries from the Roosters, and they happen within about five minutes of each other too. So um, and Asta scores one. Look, look, if we if the Roosters had gone on to win this game. I think that at this point I might have a Dragons fan on here talking about the Anasta try because I think that was a little bit dodgy too. Um, but, you know, Anasta scores in about the 15th, 16th minute. And then... Happy to talk about that one, David. Yeah, yeah. well, if you want I've to. Got a, I've, got another talk for, I've got another angle for you because um, you're right. At the time, the commentator's kind of blowing up. But for the listeners that might not be familiar with it, I, I think um, someone goes over the line and goes to ground the ball. Yeah, and in the act of grounding... Yeah, Lalu, and in the act of grounding the ball, um, Soward flies in with his knees, mm-hmm. which is now illegal, yep. and to block the ball, and, and it, he knocks the ball out of Lalua's hands, and so the ball rolls along in the in-goal area, and Brayton Astor dives on it. So definitely a try by 2020 standards, but it probably would have been a sin bin mm-hmm. uh, by 2020 standards as well, because uh, what Jamie Soward did then, it was illegal then, but it's more illegal now, he may have actually had some time off the field. That's true. That is true. Although what I do find nowadays is if you get awarded the try, you don't get the sim bin as well. And that that's that's one thing that I always get irritated by because, look, I understand that what they're doing is they're saying, oh, we'll take the, you get the worst. So, you know, the Dragons, the worst thing that happened to them is that they award the try. They, why they get why they should be conceding a try and also conceding a play for 10 minutes maybe that's why they don't do it but I think if you if you're doing something that's not yeah it's not legal and it should be 10 minutes in the bin it should be 10 minutes in the bin no matter if someone scores or not I agree with you I yeah. agree with you it seems inconsistent doesn't it I think what they should do is say if it's an illegal a professional foul or illegal behaviour, then you get the sim bin regardless. Mm-hmm. And then whatever happens, happens. So in this particular instance, Anasta happened to be there to dive on the ball. But normally, hmm. that would probably prevent a try from being scored, that kind of act. So yeah. uh, normally, you would just be dealing with a player in the sim bin and six more tackles attacking the try line. On this occasion, hmm. Anasta actually was useful for a change and uh, <laughs> managed to dive on the ball. Exactly. Well, and, and and like only just got there in front of one of the Dragons players too. So it was, it was, it was. Um, maybe it was a little bit of a repay. But yeah, look, I'm I'm happy to say that, uh, you know, maybe maybe the officialdom pick up the the sideline and also put Sal in the bin for ten. So I mean, that's going to make a huge difference if they've got a player in the bin, you know, at, at the fifteen minute mark. But uh, absolutely, you know. But look, that's. It's just one of my it's one of my things, you know. When I watch it, uh, I'm I am a former referee, and I I know that if I was, I mean, obviously not to that level. I, I refereed kids who, you know, basically like to make mud sandcastles, and um, you know, like everyone did aeroplanes to make sure they weren't too far apart, or, you know, too far apart, too close together. But it's an important job. It's very important. And look, you know, most of the people I was talking to were the coaches standing next to these six year olds, but. I did referee slightly higher grade than that, but yeah, that's that's kind of my level. Uh, but you know, I look at that and I think, and it's one of the things. I think maybe we get the hotline to Peter Volandis. Maybe I can uh, get a Twitter poll app or something, and he'll listen to that. Uh, but I, I think that I think you're right. I think it should be no matter what, you judge them separately. You judge foul play separately to if you award a trial or not. I just, I just don't get why we don't do that, and it seems to have become the rule without being the rule. Uh, but yeah, anyway, well, I think we can move on to that from that one. So then the next try is fairly straightforward. Orbison scores. 
you know. Pretty, you know, David, I've got a point on, on that all bar. I don't know if you picked this up as well, but hmm. um, I remember at the time Ray Warren mentioning that Mitchell Orbison was the son of a firefighter about 19 times. Yes. Um, for some reason, it must have been on Ray Warren's briefing sheet going in, <laughs> and he must write down a few facts about all the players. Yes. And maybe in his, you know, his dotty late 60s, at the time, he just went, have I mentioned this before? And he seemed to mention it a lot. In fact, I think he called Orbison's father being a firefighter more often than he called, you know, Todd Carney's presence on the field that day. It was a weird it was a weird commentary performance. Well, I, it, look, you know, I, I think everyone loves Ray Warren, pretty much like the, the eccentric old uncle, grandfather, whatever you want to call him. Um, you know, we, we kind of don't want to put him out to pasture, but he's he's pretty much past it now. I think he's past it in 2010, to be honest. But, you know, it's he, they still wheel him out for the big games. So, you know, we're, we're happy enough to have that. But look, even some of the comments that they make, it, I don't want to go up too much in the commentary, but at one point uh, he, he mentioned Melbourne. He was talking about people who were watching from Melbourne. Uh, and then he referred to them as those people. So uh, I, I'm not sure if he has a problem with people from south of the border, but he seemed to he seemed to be quite racist. If if Melbourne is a race to uh, yeah. towards the people of Melbourne, I, I thought, well, um, is there going to be segregation? Do we need to have you know a self, separate Melbourne person's toilets uh, in Ray Warren's eyes? I'm just not sure. Yeah, the hatred of AFL runs pretty deep with raps, uh, from what I can tell, and. Um, as you said, I think you've made the analogy to being the dotty old uncle, and, and they tend to be, at Christmas parties in particular, also racist, mm, uh, in my experience. Point. So it fits quite neatly. Um, to be honest, I, I abhor racism in all of its forms, except against Victorians. I think it's absolutely acceptable. Well, I mean, that, as someone from Sydney, I think that's that's completely acceptable. You know, like, mm. uh, that's just the way it's going to be. I, look, yeah, I don't know if we need to round them up into camps. Um, I need to probably think about that a bit, uh, bit more. But generally speaking, I think it's the only acceptable form of racism. Oh look, I mean, I think we just do a bit of an escape from New York kind of situation where we just close the border. We tried to do it before, close the borders, and they they reopen them. But maybe if we can keep them closed for a bit longer, they can just mm. stay in their little microcosm there. I don't know if we want too much of them. We don't want them kind of gathering groups too often as either because you know that's when yep. afl breaks out so we want to exactly. sort of yeah we, we can't have that uh yeah look just generally on the commentary it was you know channel nine's commentary at the time it's still interesting but it was it was definitely very interesting and in for this grand final and i i sort of it was almost like a time warp going back you know sometimes you watch these older games and and some of the comments and you know there was there was quite a lot more sterlo back then i i always appreciate the sterlo um, always appreciate the analysis, but obviously, you know, no Andrew Johns, no, you know, none of these kind of Billy Slaters or any of those sort of guys now. Um, I kind of miss that kind of commentary. So, you know, and and with Ray Warren and, you know, he, I think you're very much right about his tip sheet. Um, I, I, did he talk about uh, wherever Har where Hargraves' dad was... Was in the what was that the UN? Yeah, it was in the UN or something. Yeah, yeah. No, he did mention that. That was clearly on his tip sheet as well. Yeah, um, because I think he had a pre-prepared line and it came out a bit stilted. He said something like, and I'm probably paraphrasing, but um, here comes Jeremy Ware Hargraves, prepared to enter the field, and uh, his his father worked for the UN as a peacekeeper. But oh, I'm yes. sure he won't be bringing any peace to the field today. <laughs> and you can just tell, Ray, you did not ad lib that. 
Like, no. you've definitely created that. Here's something I prepared earlier. No, no. Well, look, <laughs> I heard that one too. That, uh, I thought I'd heard it, but... Uh, like, uh, I didn't really feel like watching the full 80 minutes this morning, so I, I just watched <laughs> bits of it. And uh, as that came out, I thought, well, this is very interesting. It's uh, And I thought it was Rare Hargraves and the UN. I just wanted to make sure I clarify that one. Um, mm. Yeah. Do you, I, think, do you think Jared's old man, when he was negotiating between nation states, brought out what Jared does on the field? That'd be amazing if he was in meetings and he was prepared to put a huge shot on Kofi Annan. <laughs> Well, perhaps. I mean, perhaps what he did is he brought Jared with him uh, as his muscle, just in case, you know, in case yeah, something like didn't go well. Yeah, like a Bond villain. Yeah, exactly. He was there, you know, patting his kangaroo, um, you know, it, obviously the lost Bond villain, you know. I, I don't know what yeah. his father's name is, but let's say Dr. X. Um, and, you know, it's it's obviously, you know, having Enforcer for a son may have may have just as well, you know, caused some great negotiations. I, I don't know about the hit on Kofi Annan. I, I, think, I think perhaps Kofi is more of a referee, but, you know, we'll see how that works out. Yeah, God rest his soul. You're giving me a great image there. I like the idea of, uh, you know, Jared's dad being there, the evil guy, and stroking the top of Jared's head in his lap <laughs> as he sort of hatches his global plans of villainy. I like that. Yeah. Oh, look, I, I apologize. I, I actually um, I had a, a situation a few years ago with, with Jared where I grabs. I almost ran him over. But um, look, it... it <laughs> I, and it was before an important Roosters game. Uh, he was he was walking his uh, he was walking his I think it was his daughter. I'm not sure if a daughter or son, but I'm assuming it was I think it was a daughter. It was about seven or eight years ago. So when you say walking ago. his daughter, he didn't have his daughter on a leash or anything. <laughs> no, not walking like that. Walking with her, I mean to say. Uh, right. So there was right. a park across the road. It was the back streets of Mossman. Um, so obviously that's around where he lived at the time. Uh, so yeah, he basically just walked straight out in front of a car without looking. And well, I mean, I stopped and he waved and said, thank you for stopping. That was nice of you, David. Yeah. I, I look, I thought about it once I realized who it was, I thought maybe I should hit accelerate. Uh, but you know, like it, it's, it's one of those things I work up on the Northern beaches and I think a lot of rugby league people are around that area and I, you know, I tend to, to run into them more than I do out in, in the sort of Paramount area that I'm in at the moment. Well, I can tell you this, unless you were driving a Jeep, your car would probably come off second best if it hit Jared because he is built like a tank. I did think about that and I thought I really yeah. don't want to have, a, have to worry about the bumper. And of course... Imagine you know, the awkwardness of having to swap insurance info with Jared after a hit because he'd done damage to your car. <laughs> I mean, that's awkward. <laughs> Yeah, I think that I think that probably what would have happened. Uh, yeah, well, and it just came to my mind then. I'd forgotten about it completely until just then. We were talking about Jared and uh, and stroking because I and uh, okay, I realised what I just said then, and I think I might just go back. <laughs> that might require an edit, mate. Uh, no, that's fine. I think we'll leave that in there. That's quite good. Uh, no, look, I just remembered that he was walking across the road and I stopped for him. I And I also now remember that um, John Cartwright once moved a bit out of the way of my car because he was being a nice guy. So, you know, like uh, the, the out and abouts that I can do for, for rugby league celebrities uh, over <laughs> the Northern Beaches, that may have become a you new could... segment. You could write a really boring book about it. I could. It's incredibly boring. I've got another Des Hasler story too, but maybe we'll leave that for a manly fan. <laughs> yeah, leave that as a crescendo at the end of the year. I like that. <laughs> All right. Well, look, uh, after the 20th minute uh, in this game, I think we'll, we'll bring ourselves back to the game. Let's have it. Let's actually chat about the game we're talking about. And, right, for a uh, change, why not? Just for a change. Look, um, actually, one more comment about the, the commentary. I... I 
especially appreciated the fact that they were talking about the middle of the ground. Uh, and on a few times, uh, Rabs referred to uh, the middle of the ground as sloppy. Um, I I thought that was quite interesting. I mm. I think if I was, you know, people want to know me quite well. I I kind of enjoy the the little bit of the the gutter humour. And I think uh, as I was listening to that and him referring to them getting all wet and sloppy, I, I just thought that was um, that was very interesting. But yeah, it really bogged up that ground. I I didn't think that yeah. it would be that boggy, but really did. Yeah, the middle third of the ground became quite Paris Hiltonish. Um, which I think that's what uh, terminology um, Fatty Vorton ended up referring to the to the ground that day. But uh, no, I remember that game. The moment the heavens opened and it, and it became sort of teeming with rain, I went, "Well, we're in big trouble here because mm-hmm. actually like to use the ball, and the Dragons just loved the slop. You know that, that they were four hit ups and then kick into the corner. So mm-hmm. I thought, well, this this mountain just got a whole lot bigger as soon as that happened. That's true. Well, I suppose. Were the were the dragons seeding the clouds that that week or something? Was there was there something more afoot from from the dragons? Maybe maybe that should have been a hypothetical. Maybe we should have uh, looked into the invoices at, at the dragons um, mm. CEO and maybe he was paying for for cloud treatment or something. That's right. Was Wayne Bennett doing the rain dance, the Peruvian rain dance, to make the heavens open? Uh, because we we do know that he loves to wear the South American guard yeah. on the weekend. Yeah. Um, you know, loves to find himself uh, in Machu Picchu uh, whenever he can. And so, you know, I wouldn't put it past him. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, look, and like you said, I look. I'm not going to say that. Um, that because Morris doesn't step on the like steps on the sideline and gets called, that you all of a sudden you know kick the goals with those those penalties. But um, I think that if if this score was eight nil after twenty minutes, uh, from what I can see, and, uh, and look, I encourage anyone if you if you're interested to watch this game again, the Roosters did have that attacking flair and they were moving that ball um, to the point where Phil Gould was actually quite cross at them in the commentary talking about they've got to be a bit more conservative here they shouldn't they shouldn't be moving the ball too much um, I think they realised that their way of winning against the Dragons was they had to move them around they had to try and score points get all, get in front and I mean like like always happens with teams if you get scored on first you, you don't win as many times as if you're if you're out in front so yeah, absolutely. And that first try in grand finals, I think, does tend to be quite crucial. Mm. Um, and, and, and if you were going to say who, uh, after the first five or six minutes, was more likely to score, you wouldn't be saying the Dragons. It was sort of the um, you know, the first major opportunity they'd had in that game. And as you said, we were going from sideline to sideline really, really early. Mm. So I was quite excited at that stage. I was at eight beers in, I think, mm-hmm. from memory. I was doing uh, trying to do a beer a minute, which was probably a mistake. And um, and I just thought, well, we're actually looking pretty good here. And then, and then that that moment, David, it just ruined everything. Well, that's right. That's very much right. Well, uh, and the other thing, I suppose, look, I keep mentioning the commentary, but uh, there is there was a bit of a discussion about you know you got to you got to earn the right to to spread it wide and a lot of that sort of discussion. But uh, look, it's it just looked like the Roosters were were definitely on top. And I think it, if it's eight nil, and you know you. The rest of that half, like you said, a lot of chances. Um, there was there was one quite like was two probably quite quite loud on that might have happened for them. There was obviously Leilua uh, receives a forward pass. It was pretty marginal, but you know I'm happy enough it was forward. Uh, and you know Anasta putting a kick through right before half time. 
you know, if either of those sort of come off, maybe it's 14-0. I think if you go, if the Roosters go into the dressing rooms at 14-0 up at half time, especially knowing what the, the Dragons have been like and what their record have been like when they'd been trailing, um, I think you've got, to, you've got to give the Roosters a much more bigger chance. I mean, obviously, you know, the Dragons pile on the points in the second half and, and that's fine. But, you know, this one of the stats they did talk about in the commentary was there's only two occasions when the Dragons had two tries scored in before, like, you know, two tries in the first half um, and or two tries before they'd scored or something like that. Uh, actually, it must have been for two tries in the first half because they were talking about that game was one of them. And they said an, on one occasion they played manly and they were beaten by 40 points or something. Uh, on the other occasion, it was when it was the week before when the Tigers had lost by a point. So, you know, you'd, you'd have to fancy your chances with scoring two tries against them and, and going in. If he scored three and, and been up at halftime, 14-0, 12-0, something like that. Yeah, you're right. As much as I've talked about the Roosters being this confidence machine, hmm. on the on the Dragon side of the ledger, they were um, one of these teams that once they got the ascendancy, they would strangle their opposition a bit like a boa constrictor. They almost reminded me a little bit of the Melbourne Storm team of 2012 a few, le- few years later hmm. against the Canterbury Bulldogs. The Canterbury Bulldogs that year being the flashy proposition and the Storm just strangled them and wouldn't let them uh, produce any of their normal attacking flair. Hmm. And the moment the Dragons really hit the lead and looked like they were sort of starting to march on their way. They ramped up that part of their game. Suddenly, the you know the slowing down of the ruck and keeping it down the middle. The rain obviously didn't help, um, and it just I mean that that game got really messy for the Roosters. It was I think that was what was most disappointing for most Roosters fans, and I'm going to speak on behalf of all of them here today. Um, was just the scoreline. It was an absolute shellacking in the end, and when you consider it was a game that was probably even for 50 minutes. Um, that scoreline is particularly devastating. Yeah, well, definitely. Like you said, just after half-time, uh, the Dragons score and they go in front. Uh, and, yeah, like you said, a lot of their tries, a lot of their point scoring and tries happens quite late on, actually, like after about the 60th minute. So, you know, if, if they're up 14-0 at half-time, you know... It, even if they score that try in the 46th minute in the second half, you're still up 14-6. And I think the Roosters' confidence is going to be much higher. So, look, I can see a path that if this doesn't, you know, I mean, I know we're taking a bit of a bit of liberty there, a bit of a stretch, but I can see that it could have happened. Um, maybe that's because I'm a Parramatta supporter and I just think that our team, my team should always win. Uh, yeah, so you believe in miracles. I believe in miracles. So, you know, like that's... That, that's how I sort of see it. But, you know, sometimes these early momentum shifts in games could make huge differences. We're just not sure. You know, uh, mm. the the old cliche of, oh, it only happened in the first minute or the fifth minute or whatever, and, oh, look, it didn't affect the game. Well, you know, the game is affected by everything that happens before it. So, you know, one one small thing could have could have changed this game completely. But that's also, right. Are people not aware of the, the butterfly effect, David? You know, this well, um, sure. causality. I mean, this is... This is the beautiful thing about sport. It's made up of a series of moments. We end up talking about like four or five from hundreds, you know, in the wash-up of games. But, you know, there are, you know, moments in, in every game that we watch where, you, you know, whether or not you know it at the end of the 80 minutes, it was significant in the result. Oh, it can be. It can be ex- extremely significant, you know, like it. But then we're never going to know. You're never going to actually work it out. So, you know, how do, how do you, uh, unless we can create some sort of temporal device, some kind of, you know, 
uh, alternate reality, you know, where every hypothetical I do, I can actually go back and watch it, then until I can do that, I, I'm just going to have to make some guesses. But Geez, that'd be fun. Like that, Hopefully that'll happen in the world of virtual reality. We'll just have VR headsets where we can go back and live out the 2010 grand final the way it should have been. True, true. That's very true. It's very true. And then I, you know, I might be able to re- live at a grand final where Parramatta wins at least one in the last the last thirty five years or thirty eight <laughs> years. What are we up to now? Thirty five years it is now. Okay. So anyway, I've I've forgot <laughs> Not to rake up old graves, mate. But yeah. um, yes, it has been a little while between drinks. On, on that front, I would actually like to go back uh, if I had the choice hmm. and be Joey Lelua in the twenty ten grand final because. You know, A, I wouldn't have cost us two tries in defence, mm-hmm. uh, but B, I would have convinced myself to be more law-abiding off the field, and then I yeah. probably would have had a better career. That's very true. I mean, look, at, you know, he's got a, he's still got a career now. You know, he's he's very much a a, a, a strange character, I'd have to say. You'd, you'd have to say Joey Lua is um, enigmatic. Is probably a good word for him. <laughs> yeah, that's very diplomatic. Yeah, yeah. but look, you know. It, He's, he's got a lot of uh, fire in the belly and probably a lot of other things in the belly too. So, you know, he's... What a KFC, from well, what I understand. Right. He, lo- yeah. he loves KFC. Well, he definitely would. But look, you know, he's with the Tigers now. Um, see how that experiment works out. They've they've got some very interesting uh, set of pairing there. They've got uh, rocks or diamonds on both sides. So mm. um, we'll just see how that works out for them. But yeah, look, at, at 18, because they, they were talking about how young he was as well. And, you know, to be honest, I think a lot of people don't remember he was a Roosters player to start with. Um, I think a lot yeah. of people just remember him as a Canberra player. But, you know, but you know, one of those players that... Uh, his potential is... I think he's still reached a, a reasonable amount of potential, but, yeah, he probably could have been maybe with a few a few less incidents for him. He might have might have been a little bit better, mm. but, you know... I mean, you're right, mate. He's one of these guys... I'm glad he exists in the World of Rugby League because he's interesting to watch. He's, he's someone that fans can talk about whether, whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, and, and he, as you said, he's very rocks and diamonds, so he's very capable of, of pulling off an amazing try and beating five people because he... He does have the strength of five men, but it it's more mentally with uh, someone like Lelua that you you see on some games he just doesn't look particularly interested in affecting a tackle mm. uh, that day. He just goes, I don't really think defence is something I need to do today, and he'll leak five tries. So he's, he's interesting. I, I wouldn't like to have him in my team, but as you said, I don't think many people would remember that he was – he started out his career with the Roosters, mm. um, and he was about half the size back then that he is now. He's put on a lot of kgs. He was quite small, he kept, yeah. Yeah, he was compared to what he is. Um, but for an eighteen-year-old, you realise no, he's actually quite big. Um, but I think before he came across to the Tigers, he had a bit of a falling out with Ricky Stewart down at the Raiders because I think Ricky said to him, "Mate, I want to get tap your real potential because if you trained hard, you could be one of the most devastating outside backs in the game." And he just went, no, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> and just went, I'll go to another club then. So I don't think he has any intention of, um, I guess, being the best Joey, version of Joey Leilua, let's put it that way. No, that's fair enough. Look, I, I, from what I saw, you know, he wasn't that bad in that game, but obviously, you know, you've, you're have you a Roosters fan and, you know... Mate, but, oh, yeah. But, yeah. He came off his wing about... ...sleeting tries... Um, so if we're going to talk sliding door moments, mm. uh, Lalua was around quite a few of them, I thought. 
Yeah, no, it's that. Well, I mean, that first. I mean, you can't really blame him for the first for the first try that happens after the Morris incident. But you know, that is that's his side, and and I think the tactic was kick the ball in behind <laughs> him because he can't he can't turn around. Um, mm. And even that then, low, low lure then. Yeah, I, they they were it's talking. It sounded about a bit it. like it. Yeah, they were talking about the fact that it would be dip, like that. I think the Tigers scored scored one or two tries the week before by kicking the ball in behind him. Um, mm. You know, like it's it was obviously the tactic, and you know we got Wayne Bennett on that side. Uh, look, I I appreciate your comments you made about. I just want to jump across to Brian Smith now. I appreciate your comments as a Parramatta fan about mind games with senior players. Um, Mind games with the fans. He he really did like mind games. He liked to text as well. He loved to text people. Um, I'm not sure whether Brian Smith, if he coached in the NRL now, would be, you know, on Twitter or something and be, you know, <laughs> DMing his players. I'm not sure if that would be the case. But yeah, he really did like to uh, play a few mind games with with everyone. He did, mate. And I feel like he was trying to adopt tactics that have been used by great people before him. Uh, but he just did it in a way that was super weird. Mm. Um, and uh, obviously, you know, I mentioned the dearest before, but I think he had a bit of a history of uh, playing the mind games with the most important players in the team um, and trying, in his mind, trying to bring out the best in them. But it's a bit of a hedge because, you know, if it goes badly, suddenly you're having a falling out with your best player. Mm-hmm. And Brian Smith, I, th- I believe he's one of these guys that tends to turn up to a club and have a really good first year. I think he had before waning quite badly. I, th- I know Parramatta, he's, his tenure was a bit longer than most. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, I think he's been to like four grand finals and he's 0 from 4, right? I yeah, guess, uh, yeah, yeah. He's never won one. It's, it's... Yeah. But I mean, There's something funny about that. Yeah, look, I think... I still think he's a very good coach, and I think he has been a very good coach. I just don't think that he has... Um, it's just a different personality to someone like a Wayne Bennett. You know what I mean? Like, it's a it's a tactical thing with, with Brian Smith. It's it's trying to win the tactics. And, uh, but look, and I think his, his development of players was always good as well. But I think when it comes to those critical moments, those critical games... Maybe he just can't get the best out of his players, and I'm not sure if that's if that's him or if that's just the players he had around. But it has happened a few times, so you know. Mm-hmm. Doesn't he have a history, David? And correct me if I'm wrong. I'm only familiar really with the Roosters' history here, but a history of trying to pull the rabbit out of the cap mm. for the big for the big grand final. I know with us in 2010, my I was turned off before the game because I found out that he had dumped. Um, Mitchell Orbison's brother, who I don't know if many listeners are familiar with him, his name's James Orbison, who was coming off the bench and doing a good role in tandem at hooker with uh, Jake Friend and had been working for us really well. Mm. And he cut him on the morning of the grand final in exchange for Lapini Payer, a prop, yeah. who hadn't played since round four or something. It was a really strange decision. Mm. And when they asked him about it, and I hope I'm not... Um, pulling a quote out of my ass here, but I think it was something like, oh, I owed it to Lapini to, to let him play. And I thought, that's a pretty poor reason to put someone in a grand final and dump someone mm-hmm. who, by the way, James Orbison, the rumour was, was left crying on the bus because oh. he'd been dumped that late and yeah, told yeah. that he won't be playing the grand final. Uh, that's a pretty poor reason, I think, to cut someone and include uh, a prop who wouldn't be... Um, you know, have enough gas in him, you wouldn't think, to play a grand final. As it turns out, he didn't. I think he gassed out after eight minutes. Yeah. And the one thing about that game that was super noticeable was the fact that 
St. George Illawarra had a, a pretty decent pack of forwards. And if there was one criticism to be made of the Roosters that year, was yeah. that we had a big question mark over our pack. We had guys like Daniel Conn and um, uh, Jason Riles, uh, you know, guys that you wouldn't necessarily say would be premiership winning forwards. And we had probably a few too many of them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, putting in a, a Lapini player who gets gassed in eight minutes, that didn't help. No, no, look, and I think, well, basically what I remember from the time when I used to watch when he was the coach, uh, and you'd be sitting there, and I mean, obviously it wouldn't happen nowadays because you have to name a, you have to name a 21 man and you have to actually reduce players as you go, and, and I think I think that would be the end of Brian Smith trying to coach in the NRL because he wouldn't be able to take it because uh, you actually have to name his players more than uh, two minutes yeah. in advance. Uh, but look, you'd be sitting there and, They'd, they'd start reading out the team list and, and all of a sudden it'd be someone that you hadn't played for like six weeks and all of a sudden, or they were playing all different positions or, yeah, there was he really did like to play around with his, with his team and and, I, and I'm assuming they're all game day decisions. There's a famous one from Parramatta in 2005 when we played the Cowboys where he puts Daniel Wagon in at 5'8". Um, well, there's a mistake. Yeah, and, and, and the, the thing about that was is that uh, the... What he said afterwards was, I put Daniel in there because I thought we needed a bit better defence. Well, the very first try the Cowboys score, they go straight through Daniel Wagon and score under the post. So um, maybe not, maybe it wasn't the best tactic. Look, I don't know if, if they changed that and, you know, they, they're playing regular 5 8 and everyone plays in their normal positions that, that we necessarily change that but you know there was there was always mind games I, I remember a game in because obviously you know 2001 that was the you know that was the lost one for Par- a lot of Parramatta fans personally oh, I think yeah. I think there was a lot of ones in that period but uh, 2001 we were playing games at the end of the season and, and at certain points in the games he would just bring a player off and leave us playing with 12 men for the last 10 minutes because we were so far <laughs> from the premiership that he he actually was saying to the players, um, I'm going to play it, take a player off just in case in the grand final when we're playing, uh, we get someone sin-binned. I want you guys to be prepared for it. You know, we were pre- That is an odd thing to do, isn't it, as a coach? Re- actually creating and manufacturing your own scenarios. Like, would he have maybe given a few of his players some shock therapy and they've said, well, why are you doing that, Brian? You're like, well, what if there's a lightning strike on the field one day? I want you to handle that. <laughs> it was um, it was so surreal. And I think that was almost the, you know, he, he thought, this is it. This is my premiership. I went through I went through those two with the Dragons, you know, and, and lost against those superior Broncos teams. And he probably looked at it and went, this is the team. He's like, no one's beating this team. I've I've created the greatest team ever, and we're, you know, because they they have the best for and against, and high. I don't know if it's the highest points ever for, and all, all these ridiculous records that team. Yeah, they busted so many records that year, Parramatta. And it's they just, were amazing to watch. And the teams that were supposed to be competitive with them, they were flogging. You know what I mean? Like so. You know, basically pretty much every team in that top eight, they'd beaten them quite comfortably in every single game they played them, you know, almost every game they played them. So, you know, there's, it was just seemed like a destiny thing and it just, you know, turn up on the, on the game day and I'm not sure, this is what I'm saying, you know, I don't think he prepares his team for a game day as well as, as well as what say Wayne Bennett does. Yeah, you know, another thing, I know this is a bit left field, David, another thing I never trusted about Brian Smith was his laugh. I don't know if you've ever noted this in press conferences or not, but he had a bit of a, almost a maniacal, husky-type yeah. laugh, a bit like a Joseph Mengler type. <laughs> he, he laughed a bit like a Nazi 
oh. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Okay. Um, and I tend to bring Nazis into every podcast that I'm on, even completely inadvertent, so I'm sorry about that. No, that's but fine. But I remember thinking, that doesn't bode well for his personality either. If you laugh like a Nazi, it doesn't necessarily mean you are one, mm. right? Um, but I think it does affect the perception of you amongst the playing group. That's true. So... So I suppose what you're probably saying there is when uh, uh, Dr. X, uh, Mr. Hargreaves, is doing his negotiation, does he have Brian Smith as his number two? Is that is that perhaps what's happening? And maybe that's why, you know, young warrior Hargreaves is playing for the Roosters. Maybe the Roosters are evil. Uh, are the Roosters evil, Eamon? <laughs> um, well, look, a lot of people would, would make that argument, mate, but uh, I'm clearly I'm on the inside of the bubble. So I say, no, we're not. <laughs> I say we're a completely authentic organisation who have never breached the salary cap, not even once, mm-hmm. to a minor degree. All we ever do is uh, buy uh, cars and houses for our players off the books. Wait, I'm, no, I mean, that's never happened either. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, well, look, uh, I think what we'll do, we'll go forward. So we're, gonna, we're going to say... Let's say the Roosters win, or they're going to score. Let's say because they got confidence, they score again in the second half. We'll give them, uh, I don't know, twenty to twenty to twelve. What do you think? Do you think the Dragons don't score much in the second half if they are behind? That they they're a little bit flustered and they they can't get into the game and maybe you're talking about a full time score. Yeah, I'm thinking full time. I think full, full yeah. time twenty to twelve. What do you think? Well, it's a really interesting, right? I've got two two thoughts on this. Uh, a would be uh, if, if history that season was any guide, the Roosters would actually go up and notch a big score because they either lost games or, or walked all over teams. Uh, but but countering that would have been the weather. So I, I do wonder mm. if it was really the rain that day. <laughs> it mm. was Wayne Bennett's Machu Picchu rain dance that really beat us because uh, we didn't really perform that well in the wet at all that year. And I don't know if we would have gone on to, even if we were on top and that Morris incident uh, didn't happen, if we actually go on a notch a big score. I'm actually inclined to agree with you. I think that we we probably have won uh, still making plenty of errors because we were starting to make a, pl- a lot of errors in the wet mm. because we are continuing to play a flamboyant game. Yeah. But we may, we may have hung on for a victory. Um, I just think that that that, that muddy, um, sloppy middle third was tailor made for the Dragons as well. And yeah. even if that had gone our way early in the second, in the first half, I think the second half was go, always going to go the way of the Dragons. Yeah, given the conditions. But then I think the the other thing you got to say about that is that the Dragons, obviously, in the conditions, are going to be better. But the Roosters are are trying to chase points in the conditions as well. So yes. Absolutely. Less errors, maybe. I mean, they're still going to play flamboyantly, but, you know, they're mm. not going to throw the ball around ridiculously. And then also, once a team, I mean, I'm not sure of your uh, footballing credentials, but once a team, you know, you're in front of someone and all of a sudden they go past you and they start scoring, you kind of, the head goes down and, you know, you, yeah. even, even professionals, they give up slightly. So, look, I know they score 26 points in the second half, but you'd have to say, well, they probably don't score the last few of those. So that's what I'm thinking. I mean, even if it was 26-18 or something, you know, like I think that you would have won by a reasonable margin. I don't think it would have been a tight game. Um, but look, let, let's go 20-12 to 12 and let's just say that the, the Roosters get some composure for some unknown reason and decide to mm. kick to some corners and, and uh, <laughs> the Dragons Come. can't do anything about it. Composure is certainly one thing we didn't have, even no. when we were, were going well. That, that that was what made the Roosters really interesting to watch that year, actually, in 2010. They 
they just were like some incessant gambler at the craps table, just throwing throwing the dice maniacally no matter what was happening in the game. And, um, and, and you mentioned before you weren't sure of my football credentials. For the record, I am a, a quite a talented ball-playing number 36. Okay, so, nice. Um, I never got a run in, in the top-line squads of any team, but I was around. Oh, that's I was good. Preparing I love, the fruit. I, lo- I love the uh, I love the fact that number thirty six. I know exactly what position that is because we had a discussion with the all three grades recently, and I said, "Look, I I always loved you know good old number thirty nine. Always loved the the number twenty, and you know like you you gotta you gotta stand there and you gotta say you know Martin Seal number twenty for Parramatta, for the Parramatta Reserve Grade team. You know one of my one of the favourite memories is watching those sort of guys, and you know I always loved that everyone had their own unique number. Yeah, it's a good thing. You got to, it's like being um, in line to the throne. It's good to know who you have to kill to get the top job. Mm-hmm. Um, and number thirty-six in my day, which was the sort of early to mid noughties, that was the official position of the milk matron. Which is what my role was: was to make sure <laughs> people had fresh milk if they ever needed it during the game. I know it's an odd refreshment; most people don't call for an oak uh, no. at halftime, but um, I was there if they needed it. All right. Well, fair enough. Okay. Well, let's let's move past the game because you know the Roosters have been crowned champions 2010. Uh, obviously, we're going to have to move forward to th- 2011. Uh, I I did say right at the start that I I had to apologise to the Dragons fans. What I think we could do for them at this point is if they are straight sets out in 2009, loss of grand final 2010. Do you think that the hunger is there for 2011? Do you do they give them a chance in in that premiership? Um, I think you're right. There is a, there's definitely, a, I guess, a degree of hunger for most teams that mm-hmm. depreciates the moment they've won the premiership. It's a bit like you finally got that. You know, when the dog's chasing the car and he doesn't know what to do when he gets the car. Sometimes mm-hmm. players are like that. They they go, "Cool, we got the premiership." I guess that was everything I ever trained for. And then mm-hmm. whether or not they know it or not. They go down a cog, and I do wonder if um, if the Dragons didn't win that, they would have been hungrier the next year. I think it just if just going by um, psychological history of rugby league players. Yeah, and and the other thing that happens in two thousand and eleven is Wayne Bennett announces that he's not going to renew with the Dragons, and he's going to. I think he goes back to Brisbane at that point, or he goes to Newcastle. Is he going to Newcastle next? Yeah, I think next? he goes to Newcastle next because yeah. I think at that stage Nathan Tinkler wasn't uh, on the run from the law mm. and was considered to be a legitimate mining magnate. <laughs> and buying everything in town. I think he, at one stage, I think he actually had the deeds to Wayne Bennett. He actually bought him as a human and would occasionally hop on his shoulders and drive him around the Hunter region. It was a weird time in Wayne's life, I think. In fact, it was the only venture that Wayne embarked upon that you'd probably say was a failure because hmm. he went to a pre- preliminary, preliminary final. People don't really re- remember that, but... Hmm. Um, Apart from that, they didn't have a lot of success up there. And to this day, Novacastrians don't really like Wayne Bennett. Yeah, I know. well, I mean, I suppose of all the clubs that he's joined, you know, it's the only one that hasn't got a premiership out of it, like, straight away or mm. at some point just after it. Uh, yeah, look, it's... Um, that That's the one thing that I did pick up when I did have a look because I, I knew that he had left the Dragons and obviously, you know, the Dragons go through a while after that, but I wasn't sure how quickly that happened. But, yeah, I think it's around... Around the start of the season in 2011, where he actually announces that he's he's going to leave, um, mm. you know, and I think he obviously thought, well, job done as well. So, you know, perhaps there's a bit of a, a coaching thing that happens here because, you know, if he doesn't win in 2010, the job isn't done. Um, is he is he likely to stick around maybe a couple more seasons? 
you know, it's hard to tell what happens to the Dragons, but I've got to say that, you know, just to piss off as many Manly fans as I can, um, I think we're going to just say that the Dragons win 2011, so that placates them a little bit. Uh, It upsets the Manly fans, and uh, it it sort of of makes it makes it a bit more interesting. You know, if you if you do like you said, you know, players have got, you know, we're all we're all. psychotic beings in a way so you know we're all we're all worried about about what how we feel and you know emotions and all that kind of stuff so you know i can definitely see that when a team wins a premiership then a lot of the players do drop that notch and i mean that's that's a lot you know to do with when you see teams don't go back to back very often so you know that that obviously happens as well if they're not the defending premiers a couple of teams don't treat them the same and you know maybe it's maybe it's 2011 for the dragons yeah i think you're right there that, that part of it outside of the actual psychology is also the psychology of other teams you know once you are the reigning premiers you become a marked team you become the benchmark and, you know, it's the actual up a few notches of your opposition week in, week out, which also makes getting that back-to-back, um, those back-to-back titles so difficult. Big shout-out to the Roosters, 2018-2019. That, that mm. were a good pair of years. Um, and a big shout-out to Media Watch Mario, big Manly fan. I love the fact you've sunk the boot into the Manly fans right there as well. And, and just on Wayne, I think the thing that was, I guess, left a bit of a bad taste in the mouth of Dragons fans was the fact that, uh, he actually departed the Dragons and took a few players with him. As we know, Darius Boyd travelled um, everywhere he went, a bit like a lost dog. And I think he took Neville Costigan and a few other guys along with him as well. So Wayne does have a bit of a reputation for not just departing clubs, but taking the nucleus of talent with him um, and not necessarily setting that club up for the future. That's been a bit of a knock on him. Uh, that was a knock on him when he left Brisbane and got taken over by Anthony Seabold, although I'm sure there are other factors there. Mm-hmm. But I have a feeling if he ever leaves South, South could be the only exception. I feel like Souths are in much better shape than they were now than they uh, were before he came there. Yeah. Well, just just, just talking about Mario, and I'm not sure if he's going to listen to this, um, I I don't think it's really in a matter for Mario because listening to your latest podcast, he is, he is in some kind of box um, unable to be heard, so it, it's okay. I don't think anyone's going to really worry what he thinks because no one can hear what he says. Yeah, and you know the best part about that is because Mario uh, doesn't live in Sydney, so he has to join us via um, you know video, mm-hmm. and all of that audio stuff up was entirely his fault. So it's great because <laughs> I get to blame him for his own muting. <laughs> he muted um, himself so, he, so badly. Yeah, so an entire segment uh, of audio was lost, which he records on his end. Yeah, which is probably a mistake on my heart by behalf. It's probably mm-hmm. a technical error that I shouldn't have had set up. So we had to go on the audio of what our mics just caught off our speakers, which, as you could tell, wasn't much. No. So it did appear as though we had buried him in some kind of hidden coffin, yeah. which is probably what we should do. Oh, it's uh, you know, uh, look, and I'm sure he's not going to be very happy about 2011. But you know what? You've got enough premierships recently. You can just you can just go away. And and look, the last the last really great team. I look, I, I'm glad that you shout out the Roosters of 2018, 2019 because last year, as a Parramatta fan, our mission was just don't let the Roosters win it because <laughs> we're we're the last three straight premiership winner. So we have to we have to keep that title. Um, yep. and no one is allowed to win more than two in a row from now on for all existence. And you know what? That is, as much as you said, it's been a while between drinks. That is something you can certainly hang your hat on, winning three in a row in any era. 
mm-hmm. is an amazing feat. And no one in their right mind could argue that that team, the Parramatta team of the 80s, that is, was nothing short of one of the best that's ever existed. Yeah, that's very true. So, I mean, good thing to hang your hat on. Oh, well, that's true. Uh, look, that, that's that's really good. And uh, I, I also want to say that when we get to the end of this, look, I'm just going to keep firing shots at you, Eamon, but when we get to the end of this, I may record two hours of silence uh, and put that on the end. <laughs> yeah, that, that was actually my fault for the record. <laughs> the listeners might not be aware, but at the end of our podcast last episode, I left two hours of blankness uh, by accident and uh, I had a few people reach out and say, you know, I listened for the whole two hours because <laughs> I figured there was something buried in there. <laughs> and that is that which, is the nature of your podcast. There probably would be something in there. Which we've done before, but not on this occasion. So my apologies to anyone that hung around for two hours of absolute silence. Um, it must have felt like you're in the middle of Braithanasta's head. <laughs> Very much so. Look, I'll, I'll give a tip to anyone who, who that does happen to. Uh, if you are unsure if the voluntary tackle is putting hidden messages in there, what you could do, there is a program, which I'm recording this on right now, called Audacity. If you record the MP3 and you open it inside, it will actually show you if it is completely blank or not. So don't listen to two hours of silence. Um, like maybe do something more with your life uh that might be helpful but yeah look i found it really funny because the funny thing was i had it in the car and i looked at the podcast and it said it was two and a half hours or something some ridiculous length of podcast and i thought <laughs> wow they've really they've really got out all out this week um and then <laughs> no it started to finish and i thought oh, this is finishing and then it went blank and i went Okay, and I went, well, I'm giving up on this because if it goes blank for more than 10 seconds, it's over. Yeah, and you know, some might argue, David, that the back end of that one was probably where the quality was. Mm. So, you know, I I think that's a completely valid critique of the show. No, that's fine. All right, well, look, uh, I don't know if we could do too much more for the Roosters, but in terms of going forward, obviously, you know, you guys go on to win another one within a few years. I I don't think that's going to change. Um the Roosters were improving at the time and, you know, I don't think we're going to winning in 2010. I know we talked about coming down notches and stuff, but I, I think that the, you can stop me if I'm wrong, but I think the 2013 Roosters and the 2010 Roosters are, are quite a long way apart from each other. Yeah, there really was a major rebuild uh, in between because we've talked about it already, but Brian Smith didn't exactly leave the place in great shape. Mm. Um, so there was... A lot of rebuilding and, and soul searching that sort of had to go on in the next couple of years. And, um, you know, we had these young guys coming through. We mentioned, you know, Jake Friend, uh, Sean Kenny Down, Jared O'Rear Hargraves, who mm-hmm. we snatched from Manly. Again, big shout out to me, watch Mario. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, uh, the nucleus of that team might have been there from 2010, but there was a huge changeover in talent, namely our coach. That was the first year that Trent Robinson joined the, co- uh, the Roosters. And he had instant success. He joined that exclusive club of being, um, you know, a coach that jumps in straight away and gets a premiership, which is pretty rare. So he came in, but he also joined the club at a time where we had recruited really well. It just had a great feel about it. Um, you know, we had James Maloney, who's just a natural-born winner wherever he goes. Sure, he gives every, everyone a bit of shit. And, um, you know, half the time his teammates don't like him. But he is an exceptionally talented player and he seems to, you know, bring success to wherever he goes. So we had him going for us. We obviously had Sonny B. Williams as well that year, which is another major variable who, mm-hmm. um, you know, could just do things that other players at that time couldn't do. Mm-hmm. You know, he was an X factor and it, it, it turned out in the 2013 GF, 
after, a, a, I guess, a fairly mistake-ridden first half from him, um, he broke the game right open and mm. changed the game in the second half. And I still, to this day, I do think that 2013 grand final was one of the more entertaining grand finals that we've had in the last sort of 20, 25 years. I thought it was, it ebbed and flowed. Uh, there was no, from a spectator's point of view, it wasn't entirely clear who was going to win mm-hmm. until probably midway through that second half. I think Manly had, probably had the edge on us mm-hmm. a little bit. And if it wasn't for the Wolfman, David Williams, we may not have won because, of course, he went into the match with the attitude of, I don't want to touch the footy, um, <laughs> including when the ball came to him in the air or along the ground. He went, no, I don't really want to touch the footy. And, of course, Daniel Tupo had a field day. At one yeah. stage, he jumped so high in the air, he rode around on top of um, David Williams' hipster beard before he put the ball down, which is a hell of a celebration. It's pretty good. I look at, you know, shout out to David Williams, former Parramatta player. So, you know, <laughs> that's, that's right. yeah. and also Daniel Tupu, former Parramatta player. So look, you know, we, we produce all this talent. And uh, I have to say 2013 uh, for pretty much everyone but Manly and Roosters fans is widely considered as the worst season of the Premiership ever. Um, <laughs> you know, especially for, for myself and for, you know, Tigers and Dragon supporters who finished in the, in what I like to call at the time, the cripple fight battle. Um, so, look, I, I, I'm still not sure what happened that season for Parramatta in terms of, in terms of, because we did finish with the wooden spoon, but in the cripple fight uh, grand tournament, we did defeat the Dragons and the Tigers. So I'm not sure whether, you know, I'm not sure whether we, we can take any victory from that at all. But, you know, for, for me, 2013, you know, that was that was not a great sort of part. That was like we talked about Parramatta ebbs and flows. That was mm. that was the ebb. That was a very big ebb. So, you know, I'm quite enjoying learning about this. I didn't know Daniel Tupo came from uh, Parramatta. And in fact, Parramatta, have t- it's turned out to be quite a nice nursery. Mm. For the uh, for the roosters, that's the way roosters look at other clubs. They look at them as a playing nursery to choose from. Yeah. Um, a bit like you know when the rich and the famous go to Africa and they they buy up little African orphaned babies. Mm-hmm. Uh, the roosters do that, but with other clubs in the NRL, and that's what's made us so successful. They probably went, well, look at that baby; it's particularly tall and lean. Well, I think we'll take Mr. Daniel Tupo, oh, and he's obviously gone on to become a very good player. Yeah, well, and the I suppose the other thing for Paramount fans is, and and anyone like that, uh, it does give NRL journalists something to talk about. So, you know, mm. it, recently it hasn't been as much about Paramount, it's more West Tigers, but, you know, they always do like to point at the so-called juniors that Parramatta have got. I mean, I don't know what you just, you talk about a junior, but, you know, people playing under 20s for Parramatta who go on to success elsewhere. Uh, we always go, well, you can't keep them all, but... You know, in some instances, maybe we should keep some of the ones we do don't keep and don't keep the others. But you know, it's who knows who knows who's going to do what. But yeah, I remember mm. Daniel Tupo. He played uh, under twenties. I, I don't, I'm not sure where he came from originally. He may have just been a one season under twenties Parramatta player. But yeah, he did play under twenties. He was a very lanky looking kid, and I don't think we thought he was much. You know, what I mean, I thought I think we thought, oh, he's a bit too lanky. He doesn't really have the weight on. You know, and he kind of disappeared, and then all of a sudden he popped up at the Roosters, and we thought, "Oh, that was that kid that we had a couple of years ago." You know, I'm, I, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. Hey, look, he's playing for New South Wales now. Oh, okay, maybe that was a bad decision. Hey, David, as a Parramatta fan, this is an interesting one. Sorry to be to play host. It's a terrible um, muscle memory that I have, but I'm interested to get the perspective of Parramatta fans here because what? It, how do you feel about Ricky Stewart? Because from oh. the outside looking in. 
I saw him as a guy who went, okay, I'll, I'll take the Parramatta coaching gig. I'll do a massive, came in with his six-year uh, rebuild strategy, which he was very vocal about. He said, this team will be shit for six years, so don't expect anything for us for six years. Mm-hmm. Rick told half the roster to go away, tore it apart, and then he got a better offer from the Raiders. He went, sorry, guys, i got to go. That, that's, that was kind of the way that I saw yeah. that history, but I'm interested from a Parramatta point of view. Is that how you saw it as well? Well, yeah. Okay, so well, let's let's go back a couple of years before we put him in charge. Uh, whoever thought that Stephen Carney was a good coach to put in charge um, <laughs> was mental. So we had two years of him, and then after the second year of Stephen Carney, it made it made Ricky Stewart seem like it was something good. But then, look, yeah, look, he pulled out the overhead projector. Um, I think he did a little bit of like a reality TV, you know, where you've got like one group and they're like, uh, you know, who th- who thinks they play for Parramatta next year? And they all put their hand up and he's he was like, not so fast. Um, they're one of those kind of things. Uh, look, yep. uh, he pissed a lot of people off. He, look, I know what he was trying to do and I think I understand it, but I, I mean, I don't understand how anyone likes Ricky Stewart because I, I can't stand him. Um, and I'm, look, it might be a bit... A bit beyond, but I I kind of blame him for the the salary cap breach because mm. what Parramatta were trying to do was they were trying to put a competitive team together, but they couldn't because they basically what happened was we sent a bunch of players to other clubs, paying freight for the next two or three years, and we could yep. not afford to have you know when I mean, we needed to get some results, so we basically signed a bunch of players in. And we were still playing, so we were basically in our top thirty, playing for like thirty-five or forty players. Like you can't, you can't be competitive. And you know, a lot of money was was thrown out, like just thrown out. And we had, we had no, you know, we basically were operating on a hamstrung salary cap, a bit like yeah, you know, the Bulldogs were recently. But I think at Parramatta, the officials, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff happening in in Parramatta officialdom and. And the you know the leagues club and the the football club and I think these guys had come in saying we're going to get success. You know, it was one of these. I'm not even sure which which syndicate it was at the time. It's probably I think it might mm. have been the the 3P Parramatta Power and Passion or something it was called. Um, but they had promised us success. And how do they have success when they're they're hamstrung? They can't stand there and go, oh look, just give us two years of winning wooden spoons. Uh, and we'll get rid of all these roster and then give us another couple of years and, you know, like, give us five years and we'll be competitive again. The, yeah, they're going to get voted out. There's no chance that they're going to stick around. So the the whole thing about it is that they needed to have some sort of success. And the only way they were going to do that was by, you know, I want to say contravening the salary cap slightly. Um, <laughs> and... And obviously, you know, they, they actually self-reported themselves, which is even funnier. You know, Parramatta, yes. <laughs> Parramatta actually gave themselves up. So, you know, they needed to they needed to do it. And then they thought, well, we're not winning anyway, so let's just give ourselves up. We'll, we'll yep. accept what happens. And, you know, it look, it's, it's worked out in the end. It has. I mean, they're, they're a much better team than they were, you know, five years ago. But, yeah, like, it, it, I, I do think that if we didn't have Recky Stewart... Maybe it would have been meandering. Maybe maybe what he did actually did help us, but mm. I don't think we get caught for a salary cap issue in 2016 for sure. Yeah, so he caused ructions even further down the track. Now, on the salary cap, maybe Parramatta just needs to have a quick chat with the Roosters because we don't mm. call it contravening. Uh, we call it persuading the cap mm. to be legal uh, creatively. And uh, there's a lot of mirrors used, a lot of um, 
Cayman Islands accounts. Yes. And uh, maybe that's something that the Parramatta Eels can benefit from. But it, it is interesting because I did think that most Eels fans might have that view of Ricky because, mm. A, I never, I never like hearing a coach say, guys, I have a five-year plan. I always feel like that's something out of some corporate bullshit handbook yeah. for a yeah. start um, because that's giving me essentially uh, a three- or four-year runway to be shit. I told you we'd be shit. What are you complaining about? Hmm. It I sounds like that. the Nathan Brown defence, actually. So yes. You know. No, go on, go on. No, Tell I was going to. No, no, I was just going to say it's the Nathan. It's the uh, uh, former Newcastle Knights coach Nathan Brown. Uh, mm-hmm. He he basically walked in, said, "Oh, look what Wayne has done to your club." Um, well, give me three or four years, and I'll we'll turn this around. And basically, everyone let him get away with with probably the some of the worst teams since the 1999 <laughs> West team that, that came around. And, and basically, he just got away with it for, you know, I'm not sure how many seasons he was there for, but, you know, realistically, nothing nothing good happened to Newcastle until he left. And, mm. you know, and then once he left, a lot of people said, well, that's because of what Nathan did for the last three years or four years or whatever. It's like, I think well, he got three consecutive wooden spoons there. Look, I'll, hmm. I'll jump to his minor defence there because I do think... Um, he moved to a club whose roster was a fair bit weaker than uh, that Ricky had moved. And I feel that Ricky had created the weakness because he sort of slash and burn the club. Mm-hmm. The thing is, if you if you go and do a slash and burn mentality and say, I'm going to do a five-year plan, you better bloody stick around yeah. and not leave for a better offer. I think once you've committed, you've, if you've got any integrity at all, you've got to stay. And I think he went, this is going to be a tough job. I don't really like what I'm seeing. I've... I'm, I'm a bit unpopular here because of some of the decisions I've made. Mm. And, oh, I just got this offer. And I don't know if you remember at the time, I think he sort of made out that the only reason he was taking it was for family reasons, which, again, yeah. I don't want to cast any dispersions. I know there are some family factors there that were, are actually legitimate, so I'm not having a go at that at all. Mm-hmm. But I did feel as though, as, as in the same way that like, some rugby league players use the family card or personal reasons as a way to circumnavigate a contract. I do feel as though he was using that as a bit of a PR block no. for, oh, that's the only club in tatters, Eels fans, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. All right, well, look, I, I don't want to go on about too much about Parramatta because that's got nothing to do with Brett Morris standing on the sideline. <laughs> That'll make you thoroughly depressed. <laughs> but, uh, look, I think I think we're getting kind of to the end of what we're talking about. I, I'm, I'm going to call it now 2011 Dragons defeat Manly in the grand final. Let's just do that. Um, Roosters don't get affected. They still go on to their, their good run. Dragons probably do the same thing. They probably similar thing. I think Wayne still leaves, still goes to Newcastle. Um, I don't think it's going to affect too many things. It might. I mean, I, I'm not sure if there was any Dragons players that retired in 2010 that missed out on a premiership. So apologies to them. But, uh, you know, like it, it, maybe it's a little bit like the, the um, ET kind of thing for Cronulla. You know, they'll still be happy, but, you know, they never actually won anything. So. Uh, yes. Yeah. All right. Well, look, thanks for joining me, Aben. Uh, sorry, Aben. I'll, I'll call you Eamon now. Thanks for joining me, Eamon. You can call me Aben if you want. I think it's a better name, to be honest. <laughs> well, that's fair enough. Uh, look, thanks for joining me. It's been it, it's been pretty much a voluntary tackle takeover of Hypothetic RL. <laughs> oh, sorry, mate. Uh, no, no, it's sorry. fine. You know what? It's going to be... It's a very entertaining episode, and, and when I listened back to it, yes, I listened back to my own episodes, because I enjoy listening to my own episodes i'm probably going to laugh along with it and, and think it's a really good episode and look to all my people who listen um if you don't listen to voluntary tackle please please check them out uh it is a hilarious podcast it's very good when you can hear mario 
talking. He, he's he is quite interesting to listen to. Um, he's not the worst manly fan you've ever heard. And uh, obviously, you know, we've had we've had your co-host on here before to talk about irrational mergers. So you know, nice guy that he is. Uh, and it's it's always a good chat. Thank you, David. Look, it's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on. And um, again, it, it's just part of my ADHD. So apologies if I did pull you away from some of the scenarios there that you were so articulately building for my nonsense but um <laughs> that's fine a lot of the time it's completely inadvertent i have no control that's okay and look i'll i'll put it out there right now if you ever want to invite me back onto voluntary tackle to have a chat with you about anything i'm more than happy to do that um and that is definitely coming your way mate oh good and um like I said to everyone, listen out. I, I really love this podcast community, this rugby league podcast community we have. And I don't care if you don't listen to any of the others, but I prefer that everyone go out there and listen to as many rugby league podcasts as they can because there's always quality out there. And look, if we can, we're not competing with each other. We're just trying to make sure everyone loves rugby league as much as we do. Here, here. All right. All good. Thanks. I'll talk to you later. Thanks, buddy. I really appreciate it, David. Thank mm-hmm. you.